Indeed, they do. Please pray with me. Lord, we would ask that the Union Hall on January 16th would be full to overflowing. 350 plus people, half of which are lost in sin. And Lord, we know that's only one way to express obedience to the ministry and music that Michael Simonette just gave to you, Lord. May we speak up. May we love enough. And may we pray diligently. We ask you, Lord, to please grow Calvary Bible Church by conversion growth. And we'll be careful to welcome new babes in Christ. And with your grace, your word, and your spirit, help them to grow up into Christ and not merely old in Christ. Help me now, Lord, to exposit your word. Help your people to listen, to be helped, taught, encouraged, transformed, liberated. This message, Lord, is a message that you brought to me for many years as a Christian, and I never entered into its truth in faith until I was probably 35 years old and new. So may this be a morning of breakthrough with my family. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, what's your heart's desire? Whatever your heart's desire is, I venture to say that you probably pray about it. You probably pray about your heart's desire often. Paul, the apostle, who, humanly speaking, wrote the Epistle to the Romans, prayed about his heart's desire as well. And Romans 10, verse 1, gives us a window into the great Apostle Paul's heart, gives us an understanding of what was probably near the very top of the Apostle's prayer list. And we see in Romans 10, 1, brethren... My heart's desire and my prayer to God is for them, is for their salvation. Paul's heart's desire was for his Jewish people to be saved by Christ. The third person plural pronoun them in verse 1 hooks back to the last subject mentioned in chapter 9, verse 31a, namely Israel. See it there, 31a? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. Excuse me, 31. But Israel, there it is. But Israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. So as the logic progresses to verse 1 of chapter 10, Paul says, but brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, that is Israel, is for their salvation. The Jewish agency for Israel estimates that currently there are between 13 and 14 million Jews on planet Earth. The vast majority live in the United States, second only to Israel. 13 to 14 million Jews relative to the world's total population is 0.2% of the earth's population are Jewish, and of the 13 to 14 million total Jews, about 5.5 million live in Israel, 
and over 6 million live in the United States. There was a visitor who stayed in A.B. Simpson's home. A.B. Simpson, some of you know, was the founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance denomination, a man of prayer and a man of missions. And this guest in A.B. Simpson's home rose very early one morning and walked down the hall to the study. There he saw a sight that deeply moved and impressed him. Simpson sat alone at his desk with his arms encircling a globe as his tears washed that globe while he prayed. He was full of a heart's desire that the world would come to know Jesus. Paul's heart's desire in this passage was that his countrymen, his fellow Jews, would come to this salvation that he had found on the road to Damascus as chronicled in Acts chapter 9 when he met the risen Christ going to persecute Christians. I think that Salvation to the Jews should be high on each of our individual prayer lists to this day. Verses 2 and 3, chapter 10. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. According to verse 2, what did the Jewish people have? A zeal for God. A zeal for God. And still according to verse 2, what do Jewish people lack? Knowledge. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. There are different Greek words in the New Testament for knowledge. The Greek word here for knowledge is epigenosis. Epigenosis is precise, correct knowledge of things ethical and divine. Epigenosis knowledge is having precise and correct knowledge about God and how that character of God impinges upon our ethics. And it says that back in Paul's day, the Jew had a zeal for God but lacked a precise knowledge of God that translated into proper ethics. Is it not ironic that God's chosen people, possessors of the covenants and of the Old Testament scriptures, is it not ironic that the people of God who had the law and the prophets, that they lacked a precise and a correct knowledge of divine things at the time of the writing of the book of Romans? Not only is it ironic, church, it's tragic. Unless we get too high upon our spiritual horses and look down our spiritual noses at Jewish people, we need to face the fact that we are privileged and some of us lack a precise and a correct knowledge of the Lord this morning. We have a completed Bible. We are permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. We have Bible study tools online, in our libraries, we're blessed. And in the same way that simply being Jewish didn't result in knowing God and being justified by God, so walking into this building week by week doesn't result in salvation from sin either. 
You are no more a Christian by walking into this building than you are a doctor by walking into the hospital. And so if you would be here this morning on the coattails of your spouse's faith in Jesus, on the coattails of your parents' faith in Jesus, or you're riding your own coattails and you think you're going to make it, sin must be punished either by Jesus Christ on the cross for you or you take the punishment for yourself forever in a literal hell. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus died to prove God the Father's love for us and to solve our sin debt to the Father with his shed blood. Nothing can be added to what Jesus has done for you on the cross. Nothing should be added to what Jesus has done for you on the cross. And if you haven't run by faith to the refuge, the safety, the forgiveness, and the hope of Christ, don't delay another minute. Now, please look again at verse 2. Do you see the little words in accordance with? For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. This is saying that Jewish zeal was not based on precise and correct knowledge of God. It was based on something else. This little phrase, in accordance with, let me illustrate it for you. Look at it this way. If my net worth was $100 million, and I gave $50 million to the Lord and his, to his work, then I would give in accordance with my financial wealth. On the other hand, if my net worth was $100 million, and I gave 10 bucks to the Lord, then I would merely have given out of my material wealth. In accordance with this, proportional out of is just a little tip to God. You know, like when the bill comes at the restaurant and you haven't really thought about what you'll give the waiter, and he was so-so, he wasn't that great. And so to ensure proper service, you maybe give him something, but you don't really think about it until the last minute. We don't want to come to church when the offering bags come to us, and then you start thinking about what you're going to give to God, because probably you'll tip him like he's your waiter. We should give with preparation and prayer, and sacrifice, and in accordance with what he's entrusted to us. You know, no matter how much money I have or you have, we are filthy rich compared to two-thirds or more of this world. If you have clothes, if you have a place to lay your head, if you have food, if you have clean drinking water, you are miles ahead of probably seven-eighths of the world. You're rich. I'm rich. And so the problem here in Romans chapter 10 is that the Jews of Paul's day were spiritual multimillionaires, but their zeal for the Lord was not at all based on their spiritual wealth. Instead, instead, their zeal for God was based on imprecise and inaccurate knowledge of God and his ways. They were zealous for God as if they were living spiritual paycheck to spiritual paycheck. They were tipping God. Do we have a zeal for Jesus Christ, which is based on a big enough base, given our riches for time and for eternity in Christ. I will leave that between each of you and the Lord. And so we move on from 
verse 2 to verses 3 and 4, please, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Specifically, exactly what knowledge base of the Lord did the Jews lack? This knowledge base. Quote, the righteousness that comes from God. That is God's righteousness. Now that's a pretty important base of precise and correct knowledge to lack, would you not say? It would be like a surgeon lacking precise and correct knowledge of human anatomy. It would be like a commercial airline pilot lacking precise and correct knowledge of flying an airplane. It would be like a firefighter lacking precise and correct knowledge of getting people out of a burning building. Verse 3, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Oh yeah, Jews had the zeal for God. Zeal wasn't the problem. Jews had the zeal for God, but they lacked a precise and a correct knowledge of God's kind of righteousness. And to what did this lead? (laughs) It led them to furious attempts to establish homemade righteousness. Furious attempts to establish homemade righteousness. Or you could call it, do it yourself, getting right with God. If any people of any time in history were good at do-it-yourself, getting yourself right with God, it was the Jews. Actually, the Pharisees, they championed the whole deal. They set up the spiritual monopoly game for the Jewish nation, for do-it-yourself, getting right with God, and the Pharisees owned boardwalk and put hotels on it. They didn't do it themselves, but they pushed an oppressive load onto the the average Jew. Do-it-yourself righteousness. Zeal, man. Do-it-yourself righteousness. Get right with God in human effort. Forget what God has told you about his righteousness. Let's do it ourselves. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Verses 3 and 4 again. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Question, are the Jews the only ones who are zealous without a precise and correct knowledge of God's righteousness? No, they are not. We Gentiles so often lack precise and correct knowledge about God's righteousness as well. We Gentiles often fail to see that the Lord Jesus Christ is the end of the law, the goal of the law, the termination of the law for everyone who believes. So let me give you quickly some contrasts. First table in your bulletins is a contrast between lost and saved Gentiles with respect to both lacking proper knowledge. So a lost Gentile has some faulty knowledge, and some saved Gentiles also lack a proper knowledge of God's righteousness. It's in your bulletin. It looks like this. It's a table with a green uh, heading on it. 
Please refer to that. I'm going to go through it very fast. Contrast. These are contrasts between lost and saved Gentiles with respect to both categories lacking proper knowledge of God. Yes, by the way, you can be saved and lack a proper knowledge of God's righteousness. And we're going to see more of that in this message. So very quickly, in this table, it's got the green heading. Lost Gentiles on the left side, some saved Gentiles on the right. Quickly, we think that we can work our way to heaven, lost Gentile. We think heaven is an entitlement. These are people you might rub elbows with at work. We think heaven is attainable, omitting Christ in his cross. We call evil good. We hope our good will outweigh our bad. Boy, I've heard that a lot. We think God will wink at our sins because they're not as bad as Sally's. That is no reference to our own dear Sally. I never thought of that sample name when I made this chart. Sister Sally, we love you. Second column. For some saved Gentiles, we think that we can work to please God. Is that you, a saved Gentile who thinks that you can work to please God? Or we work for God? Or we fear God's disfavor, even to the point of fearing the loss of our salvation? Or we depreciate each other's standing with God? She doesn't serve as much as I do. We can be saved and have a misunderstanding about God's righteousness. Still with Gentiles who are saved, we burn out in our fleshly self-efforts. I did that in the first pastorate I was in 25 years ago. We figure we can earn brownie points. We can make God love, that's the typo, make God love us more than he already does. Oh, you don't have to be Jewish to get a misunderstanding about God's righteousness. You can be Gentile and saved in Christ and have a misunderstanding of God's righteousness. Now we go on to the other chart. If you flip this one over to the other side of the half sheet, this is a, a two-column chart as well. And this column chart differentiates, contrasts between the Jews' own righteousness that they were zealous for and God's provided righteousness that they disregarded in favor of zealous spiritual monopoly with the Pharisees having the hotels on boardwalk. All of the verses in the center column, I'm not going to read them because I want you to study those out, but every point of comparison that has a verse in the center column shows you right in the text the difference. So let's go down the Jews' own righteousness column. This is what people in Paul's day and still to this day who are Jewish are zealous to do do-it-yourself getting right with God. They, see, they saw the law for righteousness. They worked for righteousness. They had a righteousness based on the law. Theoretically, that was possible. Um, they also, going to the other column, God's provider righteousness. This is the way to think. This is the biblical way to understand God's righteousness. This is not an error. This is correct, this column. Believed for righteousness. You don't have worked for righteousness. You have believed for righteousness. Righteousness based on faith. Righteousness based on faith. It doesn't require proof of incarnation. That's verse 6. It doesn't require proof of resurrection. Verse 7. The gospel in this column is near and accessible. It's still in this common column. 
Confess Jesus as Lord. That's how you get into God's righteousness. Confess Jesus as Lord. Believe Christ is raised. Still in that column. Heart belief results in righteousness and verbalized confession of faith. The problem with zeal without provided God righteousness by grace through faith is that you try to transform yourself from the outside in, and you could look good to other people playing spiritual monopoly, but on the heart, you're messed, you're dark, you're tainted. But it's hidden by a crust, a facade, a skin, a mask. God's own provided righteousness for us in Christ starts at the heart, cleans the inside up, by the spirit of God's control, and then it permeates through the outside of us, our, our facial expressions, our words, our thoughts, our speech, our actions. And so this God's provided righteousness column, see, see it with me, heart belief results in righteousness and verbalized confession of faith. To all who believe in Christ, none will be disappointed. Open to believers of all races. Open to all who call upon the name of the Lord. And then there's 2 Corinthians 15.5 at the bottom. Why would I put that verse there? Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? I can remember being at the Word of Life Bible Institute in 1981, there was probably about 200 students at the Bible Institute, and there was a sloping lecture theater down to a lectern. I remember Tom Zaharis from New York City as a guest preacher talking about how easy it is to have a form of godliness but to lack the power thereof, to have an outward crusty veneer of looking like you're right with God but on the inside not yet having received the grace of God or the blood of Christ or forgiveness of the cross. And I remember being there, and Pastor Maharis taught about grace versus law, talked about the things we're talking about this morning, and he gave an invitation to anybody who was playing church, to anybody who was at the Bible Institute because their parents brought them under force, who really had played church all their lives but knew they didn't have justification, salvation through Christ for themselves by faith in Jesus. Half of the student body went forward. You see, coming to a Bible institute no more makes you a Christian than going into a garage makes you a mechanic. I'm going to give an invitation later in this message, but this invitation won't be for people to get saved because this invitation is for Christians to see something differently than they have been. And we'll expand on that here in a minute. But let the Spirit of God, if you're a believer, let the Spirit of God, be inviting the Spirit of God right now to shine his floodlight of truth into the recesses, the nooks and crannies of your mind and your heart. Maybe you need to come in to a truth this morning that I needed to come into after 25 years of being a Christian. That is that serving Jesus isn't a duty to make him love us more than he already does. But serving Jesus is a privilege. 
It's not that I have to serve Jesus, that I get to serve Jesus. Big difference. I'm not working to validate myself in Christian ministry. I have been validated by the grace of God and the finished work of Christ. If you serve Jesus Christ in this church under the mindset that you are working toward pleasing God, it's your duty, then you're going to judge other Christians who don't work as hard as you do in your estimation. Or your service for Jesus is going to burn out, fizzle out. Because Christian service that's motivated in trying to earn God's love doesn't have the staying power of Christian service that says, I'm already loved as much as I'm ever going to be loved. I want to love them back. Big difference. And so, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with his knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. If I marked my Bible, I would mark verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for, of, for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness, but the righteousness based on faith speaks thus. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. We are familiar, I think, with John and Charles Wesley, the founders of Methodism. John and Charles Wesley were missionaries before they were Christians. John and Charles were born in 1703 and 1707, respectively, the 15th and the 18th children of Samuel and Susanna Wesley. At Oxford, they met frequently with George Whitfield and others for Bible study and reflection. John was the leader of the group, which was mockingly called the Holy Club. In 1735, the Wesleys sailed to America to become missionaries to the colony of Georgia. During the long journey, the ship was buffeted by a violent storm, and John was left cowering in fear of death. He was amazed at the peace of the Moravian Christians aboard the same ship and was shaken, realizing that they had something that he didn't have. On January 24, 1738, he wrote in his journal, quote, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? Who what is that shall be deliver me from the evil of this heart belief? Unbelief. I can talk well, nay, I believe myself while no longer danger is in near, but let death look me in the face and my spirit is troubled. 
nor can I say to die is gain, end quote. After a short, unsuccessful time in America, the brothers returned to England, where they came under the influence of Peter Bowler, another Moravian. Bowler's teachings on justification by faith, not works, were convincing. The Wesleys began to eagerly read Martin Luther's writings on Galatians and Romans, coming to the realization that their theology had been resting on works, not faith. Could it be that your theology is resting on works and not faith? I continue. This doctrine was now clear in their minds, but they did not yet have it in their hearts. On May 20th, 1738, the brothers and some friends stayed up all night praying for Charles, who was quite ill. They also were praying that God would open their hearts so that they could truly believe and have assurance of salvation. The next day, Charles believed and gave his life to Christ for the first time. I now, quote, I now found myself at peace with God and rejoiced in hope of loving Christ, end quote. For three days, John wrestled with what happened to his brother. He wanted to believe, but he couldn't. He became very depressed. Then on May 24th, 1738, he wrote in his journal, quote, In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street, where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Is that your testimony? When John went to Charles to tell him the good news, he found him up late writing a hymn to celebrate his own conversion. How great is that? He wrote a hymn to celebrate his own conversion. They sang the hymn together, and that night John went to bed hoping he would still believe in the morning. When God gives you faith to believe in Christ, it's staying faith. He said of the next morning, quote, The moment I awakened, Jesus' master was in my heart and in my mouth, and I found all my strength lay in keeping my eye fixed on him, end quote. John and Charles Wesley went on to lead the great Methodist revival that changed English society. When Charles died in 1788, he had written almost 8,000 hymns. And the first one started the night he was saved. John preached nonstop until his death in 1791. Verse 4 of Romans 10. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Is that how you see it? For you, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Is that you? 
The last thing I want to take you through in your bulletins is on the back of the sheet that has the two tables. It looks like this. Would you all turn to that? Got it? Looks like this. You will see that the top half of the sheet is titled God's View and Standard of Acceptance. That's correct. The bottom half of the page is the world's view and standard of acceptance. That is the lie. And some truly saved Christians are believing the lies on this bottom half of this sheet. You will see that on the top half of the sheet that the acceptance of the believer is all rooted in the cross. That's why the cross is there in the triangle on the top half of the sheet. Will you see that because of Christ's death for you and your death with Jesus, that you are accepted by God in Christ? You're a saint, you're elect, you're blessed, you're holy, you're righteous, you're complete, you're chosen, you're beloved, you're free from condemnation, you're the light of the world, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit, you're more than a conqueror, you're a new creature, you're set free, you're dead to sin, and you're a victor. That's how God sees you if you're saved. That's who you are. That's the truth. Now, for our brothers and sisters who don't buy this or who have been taught otherwise, these are the lies that the world dresses up in church clothing and sends to church every Sunday. You are a performer in this lie that you have to do to add God's love to your life, that you have to do to be more accepted by God, that you have to be on this church and spiritual treadmill. And if you ever dared to hop off the treadmill, you would lose God's love. That's a lie. And on the second half of the sheet, here's what the lie looks like to a Christian. You want to be acceptable by God? Then do good deeds. Attend church. Avoid bad deeds. Tithe. Do acts of righteousness, hate bitterness, anger, kind, be fair, loving, witnessing, getting along, doing your best, doing your best. Resentful thoughts creep in. They're bound to. If I put myself on a performance-based acceptance with God, do you know what's going to happen? I'm going to get tired, and if I don't think I can get off the spiritual treadmill, I'm going to get cranky. I'm going to get cranky at myself. I'm going to get cranky at my church. I'm going to get cranky at my brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm going to get cranky at my wife and my kids. Because God never meant you to be on a spiritual treadmill. All these things are good. Good deeds, church attendance, avoiding bad deeds, tithing. They're all good things. But they become poison if you come to think that this is what keeps you in standing with God. That's what the older brother did in the story of the prodigal, was it not? Remember when the prodigal eats the pig food, comes to his senses, repents and comes home to be a hired hand for his dad on the ranch? The dad embraces him, runs to him, picturing God's quick forgiveness and love, puts the best robe on him, puts the best ring on his finger, says, let's kill a couple cows and have a barbecue party. This son of mine that was dead has now come back to life. Do you remember the older brother? What's all that noise? Your, your brother who was lost in the far-off country has come home and your father's having a party. God, he never threw a party for me. 
I've been, here I've been slaving for you, Dad. That revealed his heart. Here I've been slaving for you, Dad, all these years, and you never had a barbecue for me. But when this son of yours comes home, you kill a fatted calf. He was so angry, friends, he couldn't even call him his brother. He said, this son of yours, he was so cranky. That's where trying to earn God's love, earn God's acceptance, earn God's security in the family of God will lead you. Bank on it. It's not that we have to serve Jesus, is we get to serve Jesus. It's a big difference. For Christ, verse 4, is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes.